It's good to be with you. If you want to, you can be turning to the book of Philemon. I get to teach three weeks in a row, which is unusual for me. Usually I pop in for a week here and there, and it's always hard to come up with what to teach about. But I'm going to actually cover a whole book. But it is only a one-page book. So if you want to be turning to the book of Philemon, it's only one chapter. It's 25 verses long. It is right before Hebrews. Yeah, you have to actually look. You can flip over it really quick. And what we're going to be doing this morning is I'm going to give an introduction to the book of Philemon, which in the context of that, we're going to look a little bit at the issue of slavery because it is a kind of a context for the backdrop of the book of Philemon. That will turn into a small discussion on how Christians are to affect the culture. And then the next two weeks, we'll get into specific verses of the book of Philemon and and the topic of that book. So anytime you start a beginning of a book, you usually ask yourself, who's the author of the book? That's one of the first questions you ask. Who's the author of Philemon? The Apostle Paul. It's very obvious if you look in the scripture itself. Verse 1 says, I, Paul, pretty good indication he's the writer. Verse 9 It says that he is the writer. Verse 19 says that he's the writer. And then when I go to the commentaries and look at it, it says sometimes in church history they questioned whether Paul was the writer or not. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't don't know if it says, I, Paul, you know. But there were periods of time in the church history where they actually questioned whether Paul was the writer. And the reason they questioned it was because there was no great doctrinal truths in the book of Philemon, whereas in all the other books there were these great doctrinal truths. Now there's a lot very important subject in the the book of Philemon, but there's no great doctrinal truth. But it's because it's a personal letter. It wasn't a letter to the churches on doctrinal truth. It was a one of the only personal letters that was preserved for us. But Paul was the author. To whom was it written? The letter of Paul is unique, as I said, because it was not written to the church. It was written to an individual, specifically an individual named Philemon. We don't know much more about Philemon than what um, we're told in this letter, but we know that he was a believer. Many scholars believe that he was a convert of Paul. Verse 19, if you read verse 19, it says, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Most people believe that that is a reference to him owing his spiritual life to the Apostle Paul. So they think he was a convert of Apostle Paul. Many think he was wealthy. Verse 2 tells us that the church met in his house, which means he had probably not a little bitty house. We know that he had at least one slave, Onesimus. He may have had other slaves. So he was... He had a house big enough for the church to live in, and he owned some slaves, or at least one slave, so we know that he was probably wealthy. We know that he was active in Christian service because he was called a fellow worker in verse 1. When and where was it written? Most scholars agree that it was one of the prison epistles and was written about the same time as Colossians from Rome where Paul was in prison. So we have a personal letter written by the great apostle Paul, while he was in prison in Rome, to an individual named Philemon, who was an active believer in the church that met in his house. Why was it written? Well, we know that the Apostle Paul wrote this dear letter to a friend, Philemon, but why did he write it? When we read the letter, which we'll do later, we'll see that it was because Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who had run away. 
And we're not told how he actually came into contact with Paul, but we'll see that somehow through divine circumstances he comes into contact with Paul and Paul is in Rome in prison. Why he went to Rome, we're not really specifically told, but I was thinking about that, you know, what might be the reason he went to Rome because it was quite a ways away from where where he was. And I thought about, you know, okay, I'm a criminal and I'm going to run away. Am I going to go to a small town where everybody's going to know everybody or am I going to go to a big place that, I can blend in and hide. And that that may be one of the reasons he went to Rome. You've heard the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. It's kind of the traffic flow led to Rome. It was the biggest city in the area, and lots of people lived there, and it was probably an easy place for him to to mingle and, and, and basically be unnoticed there. The passages that we're going to look at tell us that he was converted while he was there with Paul and became a believer. He stays with Paul and helps him. Philemon, the book there, tells us that he was loved by Apostle Paul. Look at verse 12. He says, I've sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart. Paul comes to love him. If you go on down to verse 16, it says, He's no longer as a slave, but much more a slave, a beloved brother. He is now a Christian brother, and Paul has come to love him. But Paul knew that by running away, Onesimus had broken the law, Roman law, and he defrauded his master. A lot of the scholars believe that he probably stole from his master. We're not told that implicitly, but to support his travel for a long ways to get to Rome, he probably needed a little bit of money to provide for his, his escape, and he may have stolen from him. So but if nothing else, he stole from him in the sense that he was a valuable commodity owned by him, and he has taken that away from him. So it didn't matter whether Paul considered slavery wrong or not. The issues had to be dealt with. Paul knew that the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon had to be restored. And the right thing to do was to send him back to seek forgiveness and restoration. And that the verse 13 tells us that was a sacrifice for Paul. Because 13 says, He wished to keep him with him so that on your behalf he might minister me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So Onesimus was actually ministering in some way to Paul and was a benefit to Paul. But Paul said, regardless of that, the right thing to do is for you to go back. So we see that the storyline in this letter that Paul's writing is going to be centered around a slave and his master. And as I started into that, one of the things I always try to do as I do a lesson and an introduction to a book, it's hard to get to a lot of application, but one of the things that kept sticking out at me was this issue of slavery because it forms the backdrop to this book and it's impossible really to fully to fully appreciate the book of Philemon without understanding the slavery as it existed in the Roman Empire so I did a little bit of background on slavery slavery as we look at slavery and think about slavery how do we identify slavery by what marks what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of slavery in our culture no rights. What about who is, when we think of who is involved in slavery, what do you think of? Ethnic group or a culture or a race, we think of it. But that's not necessarily the way it was when you look at the history, historical setting of it. As I read and studied this issue of slavery in the Roman Empire, it says that there was millions of slaves. It formed the whole basis of the economy of the Roman Empire at that time. Some scholars estimate that one-third of the population were slaves. You get to thinking about that. One out of every three people in the land was a slave. 
And we don't really think of that context when I think of slavery. I think of it in a different context. But as I researched this, I found out that there were several different ways you could, could become a slave. One of the ways you could become a slave was when a conquering country invaded a land, they would take people as slaves. And there was actually a group of people called slave traders that would follow the armies. And when they would conquer, they would actually purchase from the army the people that they conquered, and then they would take those people into slavery and they would sell them to, as a profit. It was a business because they were called slave traders. And they would trade them like property. Sometimes families would sell their children into slavery just for the money. Now, if they had a need for money, sometimes they would sell one of their children or into the slavery. Not this time frame, but even in farther back in the Bible, when you think about Joseph being sold into slavery, it wasn't because they needed money. It was just because they were being, they didn't like their brother, and you know they sold him off into slavery. But that's one way people got put into slavery is they were sold into slavery. In Matthew 18, in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, there's a story of the king who had servants that owed him money. And the servants owed him this impossible amount of money, and he couldn't pay. And what he ordered him to do was all of them throw them into prison or to pay their debts or whatever. And it talks about them selling their family um, into servitude to pay the debt. Then when you have families involved in slavery, and then when they have children, then the children were born into slavery. So there's all these different ways that people could become into into slavery. And they, but once they were there, someone said they had no rights. That, that was true. They were considered property, and they did not really have any rights. Their masters had absolute power over them. They could punish them for any reason. They could punish them however they wanted. They could kill them when they got sick or old, whatever they wanted to do. They had no rights. Now, but by the time the New Testament was written, though, slaves were started being treated better. And one of the reasons was for that was because the owners found out that if you treated them better, you got better service. And so they started actually treating them better. They were more useful. They were provided food, shelter, clothing. Many times they were actually better off than free men. Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery just to keep from begging food. So they actually found that that was a better lifestyle to be a slave, and especially if you were a slave in a wealthy person's home. Because if you were a slave in a wealthy person's home, you might actually be trained and educated to be a doctor or a musician or something like that. Whereas if you came from a meager family or whatever, you might actually just be more of a begging for food type of situation. So... That's kind of the backdrop for slavehood and the culture that we're looking at. Slavery there was was different in the sense that yes, it was part part of it was kidnapped, taken into slavery. Part of it was willing families, you know, willing to become slaves in order to help the financial arrangement. So there was different types of issues going along with slavery, and we'll look at that. A little bit more, but I thought it was interesting as I thought about that. It brought up the topic to me, and I have to admit it's a somewhat confusing topic of why neither Jesus nor the disciples ever condemned slavery, or did they? You know, does the Bible condemn slavery, or or does it not? Did Jesus condemn slavery, or did the apostles condemn slavery? And I thought I've got some definite thoughts on the subject, but I'm going to open it up for, for your thoughts on it. Did does, Why does the Bible not condemn slavery, or does it? 
Why did Jesus not condemn slavery, or did he? One of the scriptures, there's one in 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 through 10, where it's lumped together with other things similar to that. 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8, it says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. So he, he does lump kidnappers into that group. So I think... To answer part of my question, kidnapper, kidnapping is condemned in the Bible. So that form of slavery was condemned by that verse, I think. But not necessarily the institution of slavery, but at least those who kidnap. There's another one in Exodus 21:16 that actually talks about those who kidnap another man or and sell him or whatever. Basically, was condemning this slave trading said that they shall be put to death. So that form of slavery was condemned in the Bible. It does condemn kidnapping and stealing a person, but it doesn't condemn the, the institution of slavery. In fact, it actually tells you some, gives you some guidance on how to relate within this relationship. Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15, says... If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. In the seventh year, you shall set him free. That's talking about the year of Jubilee, the system of Jubilee, every seven years, letting him go. But then he goes on to tell him that you shouldn't just let him go, that you should give him some of your belongings and provide for him. But it basically doesn't condemn it. There was ways of sometimes you had to work so many years before you were free or you had to pay a certain amount of money to be free. Um, sometimes you were freed upon the owner's death. Uh, the will set them free. There was lots of different things. There was no, from what I could tell, there was no just narrow box you could put slavery in. There was a lot of different ways of it manifesting itself. But I thought it was interesting, though, when you look, like in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, verse 5 and 9, you know Ephesians 6 is that great chapter in the Bible that talks about family relationships, children obey your parents, honor your father and mother. Then in verse 5, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by the way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. So, we have this institution. Certain aspects of it are the kidnapping and the slave trading are condemned, but the whole institution of people owning other people was not condemned in the Bible. And then I, I think about myself today and Christianity today. Is there any of us that would not condemn slavery in any fashion, a person owning another person today? I mean, I think we would all say that goes against us. Um, so it brought up the whole idea of why did Jesus not condemn it? That was not Christ's mission. And is that our mission as the church? Is that our mission? Was that Christ's mission? No, his mission was to come and seek and save the law. It wasn't to build a moral kingdom on earth. It was to build the spiritual kingdom and to bring and save the lost people. And that's our job as a church. 
And then, uh, you know, as I thought about that, though, then I had to transfer that thinking to then what is our job today in relationship to the culture that we live in? How are we to affect the culture? You know, there's there's a lot of people that spend a lot of time boycotting abortion clinics. You know, there was a period of time where bombing abortion clinics was popular within the radical Christian movement. What is our obligation to affecting the culture by the example that we have biblically? And that's a tough line. To There's no question that our obligation is to Christ and we are to be slaves to him. But throughout history, there have been times, yeah, Terry and I just get got through reading uh, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And you can't read that book, but to feel the struggle he had with the culture in Germany as it opened itself up to the Nazis through the ministry of the church. It actually, a lot of it evolved with the church right at his side. And he was torn between what he should do because he called himself a pacifist. He was torn between what he, what he should do as a pacifist and pastor and what he should do when he saw the Jews being exterminated. And he chose to help get the Jews out of Germany. And he went so far as to be involved in a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. So I don't think these are easy answers, but I think the Bible gives us some very specific guidelines of what we are to do. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But what are some of the things that are affecting our culture that we would say is the depravity of our culture that we are witnessing before our eyes? What are the same, some of the things that are going on today? Just list them. Homosexuality, gay marriages, abortion, pornography. It's rampant. Credit. And we are witnessing in our lifetime a nation that is really turning its back and going the other direction. And you have to ask yourself, what is my responsibility to the culture and and what are we supposed to do about it? As I thought about that, I also thought, is it worse today in any time in history? It's not. I mean, it's worse today than it was in the, our, our lifetimes and our generations. But when you look at history, things wax and wane throughout history. I was reading about the city of Pompeii, which was preserved because of an erupting volcano had erupted and preserved that city. And there was a lot of things that as they excavated that that was preserved. And some of the things on the walls of Pompeii were as pornographic, they say, as what you would see on the Internet today. It's unreal. You think about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and what was going on in biblical times in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I don't think there's, you know, Solomon had it right when he said there's nothing new under the sun. These things aren't new. They wax and wane throughout history. But what do they wax and wane dependent upon? What is the factor that I think you can see is missing or is there that changes what's going on in the culture. It's the proclamation of the gospel in the sense of that there's a standard that men are adhering to. There's a standard, and the standard is God's holy word. When you look at times in history where things have been going well, then the word was being used as a standard. And as you get rid of that standard, like Carla's saying today, we're trying to hide it, cover it up, don't let it be talked about. And when that standard starts going away, then the culture is being affected. So what are we to do? Biblically, what are we to do? I think the Bible's specific on several fronts. One, I think, is that we are to preach the word. 
Paul told Timothy to boldly preach the word in season and out of season. Is this being done today? The answer is yes and no. It's being done here at Lakeside. It's being done at some churches, but church-wide is it being done. The professing church of America is the word being preached. I think the obvious answer to that is no. We have compromised in so many ways. I thought about the passage that says, you know, when it talks about God healing your land, what are the, some of the things you have to do for God to heal our land? When he's talking to Israel, what, was, what did he say? Repent of your sins, seek my face, pray. And those were the things you're to do. But who was supposed to do those things? God's people, my people. It's not the unprofessing people that do that. It's God's people. And I thought about the seminaries that we have today, the churches, the liberal theology that's coming out of the churches, the churches that are ordaining homosexuals who are disregarding the mandates of the Bible. And I think the the reason the culture is declining is because the church has quit being the church and I, you know as a whole. Now we know that that's not true totally and there is a restraining aspect of the churches that are still holding on to the word. But you can restrain conduct without being Christian, can't you? Think about the Muslim countries. I know Dennis has gone to travel to a lot of the Muslim countries. Sometimes the conduct is restrained. What happens if somebody steals something in some of those really hardcore countries? You use your hand. And that restrains thievery to a certain extent, doesn't it? If all of the United States was Mormon, we'd probably have good, strong families. But that doesn't really, that's not really, you know, the essence of what we're talking about. You know, I had someone, as I was discussing this with someone, they were saying something to the effect of the salt and light. But salt and light is referring to the salt and light of the gospel, not just to be a good person and we affect our world by being good. We affect the world by bringing light into the darkness the light of the gospel that shows people the way to repentance, the way to truth. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should not be involved in politics or work for the pregnancy center or be involved in reading our city of pornography. I think if we look at the scripture, I don't think anybody would say that that's not okay. And I don't think that we would say that we are not to, to desire to see these things ridicated. But our primary focus as a Christian and as a church is to bring the gospel to people and to see people saved. What happens when people are saved and their hearts are changed? Then the culture begins to change as more and more people are changed. And I think that's the, the issue that's in front of us. Um, so Christianity sowed the seeds of the ultimate destruction of the institution of slavery in the sense that as more and more people had their hearts and minds changed by the transforming power of the gospel. And I think the book of Philemon illustrates this. Apostle Paul didn't order Philemon to release Onesimus, but he does urge him to treat him as a what? As a brother, as a Christian brother. What happens then when he starts treating him as a Christian brother? When the abuses of those institutions are changed, the system themselves kind of fall apart. As one commentator stated, the principle of the gospel not only curtailed the abuses of slavery, but destroyed the thing itself, for it could not exist without its abuses. To destroy its abuses was to destroy it. And that's what happens in the culture as Christianity spreads. The culture is affected as men and women are brought into the submission to the Word of God. 
Now, with that being said, even though we first think of the book of Philemon, we think of slavery and we, we talk about those things, that's not the focus of the book. What is the focus of the book of Philemon? Restoration and forgiveness. And that's what we're going to really see as we get into it. That's what makes the book so important. It's a little short chapter, one book of page of the Bible, but it's very, very important. And why is forgiveness so important? It's one of the most clearly defined attributes of our God is forgiveness. I don't remember which person I read said it, but and I've heard it more than once, but one commentator said that we are never more like God than when we are forgiving. Uh, we are never more like God than when we are forgiving. God himself called himself a forgiving God. In Exodus 34, when Moses went up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with them. And then he goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, The Lord himself said, The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Proverbs 19.11, Solomon said, It's man's glory to overlook a transgression. We are never more like God than when we forgive. The Bible's filled with a lot of examples of God's forgiveness. What's one of the stories that stands out in your mind as the, one of the main stories of forgiveness in the Bible? Joseph, prodigal son. That's the one I thought about immediately. I mean, there's, there's many, but the prodigal son is, a, to me, a direct correlation between God's forgiveness and our salvation. You know, you all know the story. You don't have to turn there, but you think about it. It's in Luke 15. Think about it, the two sons, and, and one of them wants to sow his own oats, and he gets his inheritance early, and he goes out and he squanders it on loose living. And at the end of his rope, he doesn't know what to do. He's ready to go home. He knows that the servants, the slaves in his father's household are living better than him. And, you know, he says that uh, something's about the pigsty, you know, that he's living in. And he didn't, the Bible doesn't say that he was seeking forgiveness. It doesn't say that he was, you know, going back to ask forgiveness. It just said he wanted to go back where he could get something, you know, the pigs were eating better than him at home. And he went back. And the father sees him coming down the road, and he doesn't even wait for him. He runs out to meet him. It, he, I think the word says he falls on him, embraces him, kisses his neck. And that's what Jesus is teaching us, you know, what God's forgiveness is all about in that story. And that's how he wants us to forgive. There's a lot in the Bible about forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 is a verse that's familiar to a lot of us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ for forgiven you. As you study forgiveness, there's some hard teachings about forgiveness. When you think about some of the verses that says, if you want to be forgiven, you must forgive. I thought about Matthew 18 and that story of the king and the unmerciful servant who didn't forgive his little debt when, when the king had forgiven his great debt. I think the, the end of that, it says he was tormented and tortured. And it basically said that my Father in heaven will do that to you if you don't forgive. Um, so some hard teachings about forgiveness. We're told 
In the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So if you want forgiveness, you must forgive others. And when I thought about forgiveness on in that depth, you know, a lot of times we think we're not holding things against people. But is there someone that you don't like to be around? And have you ever really analyzed why that is? You know, is there somebody that has hurt you so you avoid them? Is there a family member that you don't speak to? There's so many ways that it can manifest itself, and I think sometimes we push out of our minds what you know God is telling us. You know, we are to forgive like He forgave. That's a full and complete forgiveness. So the priority of forgiveness in Scripture it's given in principle, it's given in parable, and as we're going to see in the Book of Philemon, it's given by personal testimony by the Apostle Paul in this letter to Philemon. What I want to do now is read the first three verses as to kind of finish the introduction. Philemon chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy to our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Epithia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this personal letter by saying he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's not his usual way of starting a letter. His usual way is basically defending or defining his apostleship or some way of giving some authority. He starts this one out by saying, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I thought that was a little ironic. One, because where is Paul? He's in prison in Rome, most likely. And I thought about people that are in prison. My brother used to be a warden of a prison, so I have a little bit of knowledge of prison. And I know that they censor your mail. They don't let things go out and in and out without, a lot of times without being read, at least in the more stringent facilities. And I thought about that as the Roman guard maybe took Paul's letter and read it before he let him deliver it. And it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That Roman guard's probably thinking, <laughs> I thought you were a Roman prisoner. You know, we are the ones that captured you. We condemned you. We put you here. You're under our control. But Paul didn't think like that, did he? Paul knew that he was a prisoner here because that's where Christ Jesus wanted him. And a few weeks ago, I got the opportunity to teach on contentment, and that was very challenging to me. And Paul is is a great example of that. How do we know that Paul was content in prison? What were the, some of the things that throughout his letters you find him doing in prison? Singing, praying, contenting in all circumstances while he's in prison. He's witnessing. We know that the Philippian jailer was converted by Paul. We know that he witnessed to Caesar's household. He sent greetings one time by Caesar's household. So Paul was content in prison because he knew that was where he was supposed to be. And that's where God wanted him. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. And I made the point when I taught that lesson a few weeks ago that he didn't say he was learning it. He learned it, past tense. He had done it. And I I would long to be to the point in my life where I could say I learned that, that I have mastered it. But I'm not there yet. But Paul's a very smart man. He chose his words very wisely. Why do you think that he began this letter by saying he was a prisoner? Think there was any meaning behind that? Who was he writing to? He was writing to a master who was a slave owner. And what's he going to ask him to do? Release this slave. 
think it was a little bit of a play on words. If I can do this very hard thing, I'm in prison right now for the gospel, and what I'm going to ask you to do is minor compared to what, what I've been putting up with. I really admire the Apostle Paul and his careful, intentional use of the words. And he also does the same thing in the, by mentioning Timothy. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. There's no commentator that I read that thought that Timothy had any part in writing this letter. So why does Paul include Timothy in that line of thinking? You know, why did he include Timothy when he says, I, Paul, and Timothy, our brother? We know he was probably with them, but so were. Look down at verse 23. Epaphras, Mark, Aristocrus, Demas, Luke, all of these other people were with him, but he didn't mention them as in having a part. And this is just subjection on my part, but I, su- I suppose that maybe he was going to set, he's setting in the process of mentoring Timothy and setting him up as a future leader in the church, and he's trying to kind of give credence to Timothy and, and bring him along. And a lot of good men of faith have done that over the years, have brought other people, you know, along and mentored them and, and parted, you know, them into their ministry, so to give them credence. And I think that may be what he was doing. He also addresses Epiphia. Most commentators believe that that was Philemon's wife. And then he addresses Archippus, which most believe that that was their son. And by Paul's words, we can assume that he was familiar and maybe he had ministered in some way with Paul. Nowhere else in Philemon or actually anywhere do we hear of Philemon or Epiphia. But Archippus is mentioned in Colossians 4.17 when he is told, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So it makes it sound like that in some way he was a part of ministering in the gospel. So we see this young man, most likely the son of Philemon, was in the ministry in some form. Summarized, we have a prominent Christian man, his wife, son, co-laborers in the church. Paul sending this personal letter to him and his family. But he also addresses it to the church that is in his house. Now, it wasn't doctrinal type of letter it was just a personal letter asking him to forgive this runaway slave but why do you think he wanted the church to read it probably a couple of reasons one so that we would have it today because it has a message for us but also i thought about the accountability that that might have if this letter was read to the church and all of philemon's friends does not not have a little bit of help in holding him accountable to maybe paul's not Stupid. Paul's a very intelligent man. And I thought about just the sense of why accountability groups are so important, why men should meet with men and women should meet with women and share the things with them because it helps them hold accountable where they know what's going on in your life and they know where you're struggling with and they know decisions that you need to make. Then it helps bring accountability to your life. And I thought that was an important point. Verse 3 is the standard greeting Paul uses in many of his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. kind of need to conclude because we have to let people open our doors and let people in. What I was going to do and what I'm going to ask you to do instead is to read this through a couple of times this week. Read the, this one-page book of Philemon a couple of times through. And next week we're going to get into... The specifics, we'll be looking at the character of one who forgives next week. And in the week following, we'll be looking at the actions of one who forgives. But for the application for this week, forgiveness is definitely going to be the theme. But think about, too, the 
the effect of your life on the culture and you know how your life is affecting the culture and specifically the gospel you know how are you using the gospel to affect those around you let's pray father thank you thank you for our time together father thank you that you are a loving and forgiving god Thank you, Father, that you have created us and, Father, in the process of conforming us to your image. Father, may we be striving in the weeks to come to be more like your son, Jesus. May we be more like him in the sense of a forgiving person. May we not hold grudges, bitterness, contempt in our hearts for no man. Father, may we deal intimately with our innermost thoughts and feelings and not rationalize and deceive ourselves father thank you that jesus christ came into the world not to set up a moral kingdom father but to set up a spiritual kingdom father that changes people from the inside out thank you for that work in our own lives and may we be instruments of that work in the lives of others in jesus name amen